Well, we're going to jump into it right away. We're going to take a look at the book of Isaiah. And this morning we begin a 30 sermon series on the gospel of Isaiah. And you might be asking yourself, why do we call it the gospel of Isaiah? This book has been called the Shakespeare of the, Old, of the Bible. Isaiah has been called the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament. It is the most quoted Old Testament book in the Bible, even more than Psalms. Most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, excuse me, even more than the Psalms. That was fascinating to me. Also, if you look at the book of Isaiah, you'll, you'll see that it's divided into two sections, 39 chapters in the first section, which correlate to the Old Testament, and 27 chapters in the second section, which is how many books there are in the New Testament. But the question is, why in the world do we call it the Gospel of Isaiah? Because Isaiah names means literally the Lord saves. The Lord saves who? The Lord saves sinners. The key theme for the book of Isaiah, the gospel of Isaiah, is the word salvation. That word is used 33 times in the Old Testament. And 26 times, it's in the book of Isaiah. He's got a market on it. 85 times, the book, chapter 53 of Isaiah, is mentioned in the New Testament. 85 times. 85 times means that it probably is pretty important, don't you think? Isaiah 53 stands prominently as the messianic shadow. In Acts chapter 8, we read this incredible account. The church is young. The church is new. Acts chapter 8, there's a eunuch who's reading the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And Philip runs alongside the chariot. Wouldn't that be fun to see that made into a movie? He runs alongside and the guy has no idea who Isaiah is talking about. And Philip explains it to him. It's a messianic shadow. The book of Isaiah almost got our Savior killed. What do you mean by that? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes out of the 40 days of temptation, walks into a synagogue, and picks up the scroll from the book of Isaiah and reads about the Messiah. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled. They almost killed him. The book of Isaiah. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament is all about Jesus. And the early church leader called a church father because of his influence, Augustine quoted this. You've heard me say this before. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Let me say that again. And no, no clearer do we see it in the book of Isaiah. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. You don't see it. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. The book of Isaiah is a masterpiece of literature. And it has strong law gospel themes that are repeated throughout the book. And we see them in these terms, judgment and hope. And the key themes for the book of Isaiah that you will hear repeated again and again and again and again on purpose are these four key themes. And we'll take a look at them a little bit later this morning in this message. The key themes are holiness that's the concentric circle. It starts there, the holiness of God. What, what uh, Tim led us, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then the second theme is one of judgment, calling for repentance. The third theme is mercy, the mercy of God and the invitation for mercy. And the fourth is the hope 
of a redeemer, that key, key word. Now this is what's important to understand about Isaiah as we jump into it. The very first word. The very first word clues us into the book of Isaiah. It's fascinating. The word is vision. And the same word is used later in the verse 1. Did you catch that? Vision, and then the English word is see. Same root word. One's a noun, one's a verb. And the idea behind a vision is real reality, what matters. The divine speaks. And so as a prophet, the book of Isaiah will be both forthtelling, meaning seeking to change the present, meaning saying a word so that people will change their behavior and repent, and foretelling, revealing the future of what's going to happen. He'll do both of them. There was a uh, helpful uh, commentary that I came across, Concordia Self-Study Commentary, and it made this comment about vision. And I hope it helps you as much as it helped me. Let me read it to you. Unhampered by the dimension of time and space, Isaiah's vision ranges back and forth on a line stretching from his day to the final consummation of all things temporal and terrestrial. Isaiah is granted a perspective which allows him to see the past, the present, and the future, not in a mundane sequence of events, but in the divine light of the eternal now. Isaiah brings us God's revealed truths according to a rhetorical scheme differing from our system of composition. We are committed to the Aristotelian, Aristotelian logic. We arrange our facts in a line of progression from one set of data to the next. After one aspect of an issue has been exhausted, we proceed to the next unit pertinent in the discussion. Isaiah and fellow prophets are not bound by our literary canons. They develop their messages in circular movement of thought rather than elaborating subject matters vertically like from point A to B. They draw a series of concentric circles around a given topic. Did you catch that? Concentric circles around a given topic. In order to drive home a point, they take it up again, again, and again, and they encircle it with additional reasons, observations, and illustrations. And the result is not tedious repetition, but an effective teaching device which has not lost its appeal to readers of all ages. Wow. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. The book of John tells us, 1241, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. He'll see that. We'll see his glory in Isaiah chapter 6. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was the prophet who was the one cut in half in Hebrews eleven thirty-seven. Why was he cut in half? Because Exodus thirty-three twenty says this, no one will see God and live. Wow. But the words for Isaiah are not just for a country by the name of Judah, but for the church today. Repentance is the key, not rededication, not commitment. The utter weakness of saying, Lord, have mercy on me, change me. I have no other place to turn. Repent repentance opens up redemption in falling on the mercy and grace of Christ, the Redeemer. So over the course of 40 years, these prophecies were told. 
they were communicated under four different administrations of King Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And for the most part, not a lot of people listened to what Isaiah said. Forthtelling and foretelling, repeated themes again and again. God is concerned with saving sinners, and a special concern of his is the bride of Christ, the beloved ones, known as the church. A pastor by the name of Ray Ortland, and you'll probably hear me quote him on occasion in this series, says, the church is the secret government of God. Let that just sink in. The church is the secret government of God. We are the salt and light and love and justice. Micah 6.8 is that kind of stuff, which many of us have memorized. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Radiant joy, clarity of truth, exceeding in grace, fervent in prayer and intercession, radical generosity. How are we doing with that church? Are we any different than the world? We see this repeated theme again and again and again. Concentric circles, repetition, more illustration again and again to get a better handle on the book. So that's why we call it the Gospel of Isaiah. So our friends from the Bible Project have once again given a phenomenal overview and big picture. Remember that most of Isaiah's message will be rejected and ignored. I want to encourage you to pick up a paper copy of what you're going to see here in just a couple seconds. A paper copy from the Bible Project. I think they do a great job at giving an overview, a way better job than I can do. So we're going to take a look at that from the Bible Project right now. This overview from the book of Isaiah. spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke first of all a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost. That God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. 
Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God. And Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment. But because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. 
But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity and it's described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin and one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. Wasn't that helpful? Hope it gave you a good overview <clears throat> of where we're going and what the book of Isaiah is about. Again, <clears throat> if you didn't catch this, uh, these, um, what was just sketched out there, these are available at the Welcome Center. I'd invite you to um, find a copy and use that as well. Well, let's jump into Isaiah in this intro message. I want to encourage you to find a copy of the scriptures. It's on page 586. We're going to take a look at these four themes that are found in Isaiah chapter 1. Those four themes come from a vision, which is a divine reality, what is really real. Make note of this, that his vision is not mysticism nor his own revelation. But chapter 1 serves what some scholars say is a microcosm of the entire book. You see these concentric circles repeated again and again and again. And the first theme that we mentioned is the Holy One of Israel. So my, here's my question I have for you. When you hear the word holy, what comes to mind? Purity, maybe? Morally and ethically? But holiness 
means to be set apart like no one else. It was interesting, the song that, we, that, that struck me when, when Tim led us in the first opening hymn, Holy, 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 I thought, though the darkness hide thee, darkness cannot be hidden for long with the holiness of God. In section verses, in this first chapter, verses two through four, we see the Holy One, that instead of gratitude, the people of God despise the Holy One of Israel. Notice the indictment. The indictment in verse 2. It's a scene of a court. Hear you heavens, listen you earth, for the Lord has spoken. He uses language of relationship. Some commentators say that in verse 4, the word woe, do you see it there? Woe to the sinful nation should be translated shameful. And the three strong verbs that are in this section from 2 to 4, circle them in your Bible. This is what they have done. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned their backs. The Holy One of Israel is a term that we'll see repeated again and again, used 20 times in the book of Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel is in relationship. He's in relationship. It's not a transactional relationship. It's a parental relationship. I reared children and brought them up in covenant. We often introduce our services in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He is with Israel as he is with us. And we are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a city set on our hill. And our idols of pleasure and comfort and ease and happiness have led to sloth and laziness and apathy of our own sin and loving others as we are called to love. Selfishness and lust and gossip and arrogance are rampant. And the aim of this series isn't to see the children of Judah as them guys who were clueless, but to take the mirror of God's word and see the stain of idolatry in our lives. Tim read the call to worship, which was a powerful call to worship from Deuteronomy chapter 4, and I was smiling as Tim was reading about the Lord our God, and has any other God done this? Preceding that call to worship in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is this. These powerful words from verse 23 and 24. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he has made with you. Do not make for themselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord has forbidden. And then this powerful verse. Listen to this verse. Let this just penetrate your heart and soul. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Listen to that. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with anyone or anybody or anything. He alone stands by himself. He is jealous over your time. He is jealous on how you handle your tongue. And my prayer for you is that you would take this series and say, Lord, show us our sin so that I may not forsake you or spurn you or turn my back on you. I was reminded this week of a difficult ministry situation I encountered of a couple with marital struggles. Years ago, one partner was unfaithful and though the other lover reality was exposed, this particular partner was sorry 
but he wanted to keep the family together for the kids' sake, but he wanted to keep the other lover too. And I pleaded with him, and it didn't register, and it didn't get through. Jealousy for one's undivided allegiance was necessary for there to be any future for that family. There can't be another lover. Chapter 1 serves as a microcosm of these repeated themes, and it stands with this, the Holy One. Holy is, holiness isn't part of who God is. It's who he is. He's set apart all by himself. All by himself. The second theme is one of judgment, and then we find that in verses 5 through 10. Judgment is coming. A people who have strayed, who has once withered, they are now condemned. Verse 5 introduces us. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole, your whole head is injured and your whole heart is afflicted. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. And the shift in verse 9 seems to be subtle, but the comparison can't be missed. Notice what verse 9 says. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we, we would have become like Gomorrah. Wow. As guilty and immoral and corrupt as Sodom and Gomorrah was and stood as a historical and universal symbol of depravity, now Judah, God's people, are in the same status, but God left survivors. Alec Moiter in his commentary said, they were spared the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the spirit and culture of Sodom and Gomorrah lived amongst them. Wow. Wow. Israel had a facade of righteousness. And God was calling them out. That's the second theme. The third theme is found in Isaiah 10 through 20. Mercy is offered. Mercy is offered and repentance is essential. 10 through 17 tell us generally that actions were sacrifices, actions, sacrifices were happening, but hearts were far away from our Father. The idea is you can go to church or you can worship. Is there a difference? You bet there is. You bet there is. Could this be true in our church? The key to this section is verse 18. Some think it's a sarcastic comment, but it makes your head scratch. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. When I read that verse in this context, I thought, who can possibly pay for all those sins? Who could possibly pay for all the sins and the wickedness. Is there anyone that can make sins as white as snow? A couple weeks ago, there was a Christian pastor who passed away who's influenced many pastors. His name was Tim Keller, and I've quoted him before. He made this comment. He said, to be loved and, but not known is superficial. Listen to that. To be loved and not known is superficial. You see that maybe on the red carpet awards or music awards or Hollywood. People will say, we love you, Tom Cruise. Or to a baseball player or to somebody famous. And you may think, 
You don't know him or her. They could be a jerk. Just saying. To be loved and not known is superficial. To be known and not loved is terrifying. Because you're all alone. You're abandoned. You know me and you don't love me. But then Keller goes on to say this. But to be known and loved, well, that describes God our Father. Isn't that good? But to be known and loved describes God our Father. What can take away my sin? What's the next line? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Who can take away this sin? Repentance. Lord, have mercy on me. John chapter 8. We find a woman caught in the fleshly act of sexual immorality. Sleeping with another man who's not her husband. And this woman gets thrown in front of Jesus. And she gets accused. And after the oldest, if you're familiar with the story in John chapter 8, after the oldest start dropping their stones. Jesus is alone with the woman. It's just Jesus and her. Just the two of them. And he says, where are your accusers? Did even one condemn you? You got to ask the question, who's going to pay the penalty for her action? And for the guy as well too, right? Who's going to pay that penalty? Certainly not the woman. Certainly not the full-time, lifetime, dedicated expert in the Old Testament law who was there dropping the stones. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verse 19 and 20 say this, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Wow. Sounds a lot like when we confess when he says, He will come to judge the living and the dead. Third theme. Third theme, mercy is offered. But take hope. The fourth theme, don't miss it. It's the hope of a redeemer. It introduces the key idea of verses of redemption. Unfaithfulness is rampant at every level. Zion will be purged except for the remnant. Prophetically, in verses 2 and 5, and we're going to extend this into chapter 2, verse 5, it says this prophetically, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Here we are, generations removed from first hearers of the book of Isaiah, and here we are. One of the beautiful things that came out of the Asbury revival that happened in February was confession of sin and hunger for worship. Young people not playing church games or positional politics, but they hungered for lost people going to hell to know Jesus. Wow. That word redeemer, I hope that becomes a rich word for you. I grew in my love and appreciation from it when I came across a quote by B.B. Warfield. He was a professor of theology at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey in the late 1800s and the 1900s. In a lecture he gave in 1915, he said this about redemption. And oh, by the way, you pick up redemption in verse 27 and 28. 
Zion will be delivered with justice, her pertinent ones with righteousness. But rebels will be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. Redemption is coming in the person of Christ. Redemption is Christ. B.B. Warfield said this, back to the quote, there is, no, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to the Christian heart than Redeemer. There are others, it's true, which are more often on the lips of Christians. The acknowledgement of our submission to Christ as our Lord, the recognition of what we owe him as our Savior, these things naturally are most frequently expressed in the names we call him. But Redeemer, Redeemer is a title of more intimate revelation than either Lord or Savior. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure this salvation for us. It is the name specifically of the cross of Christ. This section gives us a glorious future marked by the Redeemer. The difference between righteous people and sinners is not the absence of sin, but whom we trust for deliverance. Repent and live by faith. The arrogant ones live for themselves. And you see that in verse 27 and 28, don't you? You see that played out also on the two thieves of the cross. One cries out for Jesus to have mercy on him. And the other is angry. The enemy is not outside, friend. It's not on social media. It's the sin that lives and metastasizes in our own hearts, in our church. And so as we start this series on the book of Isaiah, I invite you to use this book as a mirror and say, Lord, show me, show me, show me. Repentance is weak. Repentance is weak, but it opens ourselves up to redemption when we throw ourselves at the mercy of Christ. So as a church family, how can we respond? I want to invite you to do a couple, three things. I put this in your bulletin insert. One, reread Deuteronomy 4. If you think this is a heavy message, well, it was. And the Gospel of Isaiah shows us our sin. Reread Deuteronomy 4. Part of it will include the call to worship my friend Tim read. But it will be fronted by that verse that says he is a jealous God. Number two, I want to encourage you, if you have not committed yet, to studying the Gospel of Isaiah along with us this summer. You can find a great resource on Right Now Media called the Gospel of Isaiah. And then secondly, if you're a reader, you know that I like to um, refer books. There's a devotional book that I'm going through by Alec Moiter. It was very helpful for this first one. It's called Isaiah by the Day. It's a devotional guide. So if you need a new devotional uh, for the summer going in, you can follow along. Give you those three. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth will sing thy praise. The cherubim and the seraphim, they cover their faces because of your glory. Who are we? We are to be judged. We have sinned against you. Our sins are red. Thank you that you sent a Savior for us, a Redeemer, 
named Jesus. Protect us from playing church games. Show us our sin that we might repent, lay ourselves before you, and say, have mercy on me. Thank you. Thank you that you hear the prayers of people back then and right here in our sanctuary. We love you, Lord. Amen.